Psalm 14, beginning at verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Where You have made Yourself known to us. Will You give us grace in this moment as we read the Old Testament that we would read it without the veil, with the veil removed, as Paul talks about. That we would see here our Lord Jesus that we would see here the condition of humanity apart from Your grace. Would You take Your Word and strike it deep, that there may be conviction, that there may be fruit, that there may be repentance and faith. Would You give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and hearts that are softened, prepared for Your Word. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So Lord, would you speak to us? For you are present. Would you speak, O Lord? Father, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. There are two ways to live. There are two views of the world. And you might think that our world is much more complicated than that. You may believe that our world is full of competing and rival world views. And I would say to you that, in part, that is true. But when you boil it down, there are two ways to live. And there's two ways to see the world. You either live as one who acknowledges, trusts, obeys the only true and living God. Recognizing Him to be Creator and everything else in existence to be created. Or, and in this or, the rest of the world may find its spot. The rest of the religions and philosophies, whether they be Buddhism from, or atheism or Hinduism or Islam, either you recognize the true and living God or you do not. There are two ways to live. And there are only, arguably, two worldviews. 
Now, like I said, that is slightly simplistic. We don't have time to parse out all of the rival, rival worldviews. But scripturally speaking, they all fall in the same camp. They all fall in the same camp as rivals against the true knowledge of God that one, He has implanted upon the human heart through the image of God, and two, now has made explicitly known through His Word. When the psalmist begins this psalm, he says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. You may immediately think of someone like Christopher Hitchings or Stephen Hawking, some famous scientific atheist. And while these words would apply to them, they would be fools before God, as they have discovered. What is in view for the psalmist is not so much the secular atheist that we might picture in the 21st century, but it is the member of the covenant people of Israel who may pay lip service to the things of God, who may be a part of the congregation of God, but does not acknowledge God in his heart and ultimately in his life. Surely the people who are hearing this penned by the King David, who would once eventually be King David, Surely they did not doubt the connection of the Lord and Israel and the connection of what God did bringing His people out of Exodus, but they simply did not care. There was an inward denial of God's imminence. And imminence means of God's nearness. They deny both His imminence, His closeness, that God is in fact here. And as the Apostle reminds us, that in Him we live and move and have our being. To say that there is no God in the heart, is to communicate from the very center of our being that God is not present, one, and then two, that we are not accountable to Him. This is the path of foolishness. And it takes many different forms. What the fool is doing here, and fool, if you were, if you wanted, you could equate this with the wicked. Same idea. That fool is not someone who's simply an atheist, it's not someone who is ignorant, but it's someone who knows, who has possession of the truth in one way or the other, but refuses to acknowledge and submit to that truth. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool is the wicked who boasts of their independence from God. And as I think, as I remember... As the Apostle also tells us in Titus, we were once foolish, just like the rest. In Titus chapter 3. He boasts of his independence from God. God is not important to him. And denies any accountability to him. What might this look like in 21st century Elgin? What might this look like in 2021, right? That's the year that we're still in. Everything feels like either it's going incredibly slow or incredibly fast all at the same time. What might this look like here? 
Well, it might be someone who is a very studious or dedicated, faithful perhaps, attender of one of our many churches here in Elgin. Or they may not be. But it's someone the rest of the week that God does not play a part in their thinking, their living, their loving. God does not show up on their calendar. He does not show up in their checkbook. If kids back in the day, there was this thing called a checkbook. Okay? And people, instead of, they, 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 didn't, have the, they didn't have debit cards. And you would have to write out. What you wanted to, when you wanted to pay for something, okay? So there's this thing called a checkbook. Uh, and so maybe it doesn't show up on your account statement on uh, bankofamerica.com or whatever it is that you do, Wells Fargo. God does not show up on the radar the rest of the week except for a social hour known as Sunday morning. That might be the way that the fool appears in 21st century Elgin. 21st century Bible Belt. But of course, that variation of the fool is growing as a shrinking population. If you have paid any attention to demographics and statistics and studies, you know that attendance in America, church attendance in America, is on the decline across the board. It doesn't matter if you are a mainline liberal church that simply claims the name Christian but actually isn't Christian, or a faithful Bible-preaching church, all of them seem to be... Broadly speaking, every denomination, even the non-denominational denominations that don't want to be denominations, everybody is declining. It's not a knock, it's just a poke. And in some ways, that's probably good. The sooner that the fool can be disavowed... of an outward connection to the things of Jesus, the better. Do you understand what I'm saying? The sooner that the one who says in their heart, there is no God, but God does not show up in their life the rest of the week, the sooner that they come to the realization that they are not a Christian, that they do not belong amongst the membership roles of Christian churches, the better off for them and for the church. And that sounds that might sound harsh to you, and that's not my intention. Unless you are the fool who says there is no God, then I would say to you, wake up, my friend. God is present. And to Him we must give an account. I say it's not harsh because, one, it is self-deceptive for the fool to be connected to a Christian church. And by the fool, I mean, again, not someone who's simply atheistic or someone who's simply ignorant, but I'm speaking of the one who would take on Christian clothes, if you will, who would take on Christian guys on Sunday mornings, but the rest of the week, has, Jesus has no bearing on their life. The sooner that they can be, come to the realization that they have no claim upon Christ, the better. They need to be broken of their self-deception. The scales need to be removed. The hard heart needs to be convicted. It is for their good they come to that realization that I don't belong there. And that might very well be their response to the Word of God preached, to the Word of God sang and Word of God prayed. That might be. 
and it would be for their good. And it might be the road of repentance and faith for that one. Um, This is not me saying carefully. When I say that they have no part in the membership role, I do not mean they have no part in the, the church house. You understand what I'm saying? There's a distinction. They ought to be amongst God's people. They ought to be hearing the gospel preached. They ought to be exposed to faithful Christians living out a Christian life and a Christian marriage and Christian parenting, that they are welcome here. But what happens, particularly in a Baptist church, when we say that you are a member here is saying, we recognize so much as we are able, we recognize by confession of by confession of faith that what you say and how you live, that you are a Christian. This is how we operate in church membership. This is why we, re- we require before you become a member here that you have to have a, and I call it an interview, it sounds intense, it's really not those of you who have joined since I've been the pastor here, but we sit down and I hear, why are you here? What has God done in you to bring you here? And if you're not a Christian, you're, you ought not be a member of the church because we're making a statement together. I didn't intend to get into all that, but a little bit of ecclesiology is always good for us. Ecclesiology is just the big word for doctrine of the church. But it's good for the fool. It's good for the one to realize that they do not have a claim on Jesus so that they may come to the point of repenting and trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And it is good for the church. It is good for the church that our recording of those who are actually members of the church that it actually line up with those so much as we can who are actually living for Jesus throughout the week that Jesus does show up on your calendar he does show up in your checkbook if you want to know what a people a person's priorities are look at where they spend their time and look at where they spend their money those things do not lie friends And for the record, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're just tithing. I have no idea what anyone gives, and I never want to know what anyone gives. This is not me beating you over the head asking for more money in the plate. But it does mean that you need to steward what God has given you for God's glory, including your time and your money and your talents. Okay. So, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, and there's three products of that. Eventually, I will get out of verse (laughs) 1. They are corrupt. They've become like sour milk. That's the idea here. There is a... There's a, a, a turning of the soul that what sin does to a human is what sin has done to the human race. Sin has corrupted us. That which ought to be life-giving and sustaining, like a good glass of milk. Now, if you're like one of those fitness people who says like dairy is super inflammatory in your body, and just just shh for a second, okay? Shh. But it should be like a good glass of milk, giving strength and, and vigor that there's that there's health brought to it. But I, I don't know if you've ever been. It's the worst thing in the world, by the way. You make a bowl of cereal. You know. And it's just, I, lo- I have a problem. I love cereal. I absolutely, like I would eat it. You could ask Sarah Beth. I would eat it 
every meal and then the snacks in between the meals, I would just burn through. I, I can't, obviously. It's so good. Um, and so you, then you can have mixed different concoctions. And All right. So uh, you got a little bit of Fruit Loops and some Lucky Charms. And then you, if you want to be healthy, you put some Cheerios on top of it so you can't see all the marshmallow goodness underneath. And so then you, then you, pour, out the, you pour out the milk. You've made this beautiful bowl of cereal. And you pour out the milk. And that first bite, you're thinking, this is not what I signed up for. My expectations are not met in this moment. And this is what humanity ought to be. We ought to be that that beautiful, life-giving presence to each other and to the world, serving one another, loving our neighbors as ourselves, and loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what sin has done, it has corrupted us like a jug of sour milk. That everything we ought to have been, we are not. Everything we should have brought to the table, we have not. And we are fit for the dumpster, but by God's grace, He does not cast us there immediately. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. You see that from what they are, are to be, I mean, excuse me, are to do, what they are influences what they do. What you are dictates what you do. You follow this? It's going to be important for the gospel in a minute. What you are shapes and dictates what you do. Those who are corrupt, who, who say in their heart, you see the corruption is the denial of God. It is a refusal to submit to God. It is a longing to be independent of God that shows up just like our first parents, Adam and Eve. And that is what corrupted them, is that which corrupts us. And because we have been corrupted, we now do abominable deeds. We perpetrate sin from sinful natures. We are not born morally neutral. We are not born tabula rasa, as John Locke would have you say, even though he's talking about what we know. We are not born neutral. We are born bent. Because we are a people... This is the whole point of the psalm almost. We are a people corrupted and therefore we pursue corruption. We perpetrate corruption and we do abominable deeds. This is the nature of the world. This is what sin does to people. It turns us like sour milk. There's none who does good. None. There's no qualifiers there. He is talking about, the psalmist is talking about the fool who says in their heart, there's no way. There is no way. Did you get that part? There's no way that one can do good from a heart that says there is no God. There's no way to do good in the eyes of God. This does not mean that someone who denies Jesus, someone who denies God, can't be a morally upstanding citizen or be a moral person. But in the eyes of God, who looks at the heart, who examines the motivations, there, it is an impossibility. Verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. There's an, an anthropomorphism that God, God already knows. He doesn't need binoculars to see what's happening in your life. But this is just a reminder that the Lord is here. He looks down from the throne, but He's also present. Now He is near and He will either justify or judge. And He sees, He looks down from heaven on the children of man to see 
What is his inquiry? What does God looking for? To see if there are any who understand. Who seek after God. He's, he's looking. You get this picture of the Lord who is the sovereign of the universe who spoke and worlds came into being. And he's saying, is anyone looking for me? Their hearts are beating in their chests because of me. Are they, are they paying attention to me? Their respiration system is working because of me. Are they, are they paying attention? Do I matter to them? And not only does God want to see if you even matter to Him, but if God is who He is, which He is, then He ought to be central. That when He comes to see, He's looking for God showing up on our calendars. Have we made time for Him? Is it important to us that you fellowship with the living God? To worship with His saints? Do you spend what He has given for His glory? Time, talents, treasure. So He's looking to see if there's any who seek after Him. What does His inquiry find in verse 3? It's not good news. The audit, if you will, Jim, the audit has turned up. Not good thing. I don't know what audits, like language actually, that, what they turn up, but it's not good. Not a CPA, Jim is. Or was. Retired. Freedom. <clears throat> they have all turned aside. God's survey of the human race in and of themselves have turned up those who have turned aside. They all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's that word again. It's a, it's a different word in the Hebrew that carries the same sort of meaning. But what, what, you want to, what I want you to see in verse 3 is that God's inquiry or audit of the human race turns up that every, they all have turned aside individually. There's an individual turning. You understand the, the, the picture here of turning aside. What we are doing right now, by the way, is that we are doing a diagnostic on sinful humanity so that if this is you, you might see, by the end of the psalm, you might cry out for the salvation that is offered to you in Jesus. But all of them individually, each and every individual, turns aside. And then that latter half of that verse, or latter half of that phrase, together they have become corrupt. So that sin expresses itself individually and it corrupts collectively. And this should be a little bit of a push against the collectivist notions in our present culture. As though we were able, if we just get enough people to the table, if we get enough resources banked in a federal reserve somewhere, surely we'll know what to do with it. That socialism for people, for Christian people, is actually, or excuse me, socialism in a fallen world only magnifies sin. It magnifies the devastation. And what happens, they've all turned, and this isn't just a governmental thing, right? But that's, that, that businesses can be corrupted and institutions can be corrupted because of the presence of sinful people operating together for sinful dreams and goals in rebellion to God. 
They have all turned aside, each individual. Together, collectively, they've become corrupt. So it's not just that each and every one of us before the grace of God, it's not just that we were sour milk, but that collectively together, we're a big bowl of sour milk. You can make it as funky as you like. It's got the lumps in it. Yeah. Start feeling it. I want that visceral, visceral reaction to lumpy sour milk is how we ought to react to sin. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's no one. There's none who does good. Not even one. It's like, let that percolate for a second. If you were to go interview people in our town or in Columbia, nearby, Kershaw County, South Carolina, all over the world, if you were to, if you were to interview them, most everybody would say some, some variation of, oh, well, I'm, I'm a good person, but I'm not perfect. Well, like, that's like, it's an oxymoron in Scripture language. There are no good people. In and of themselves, by nature, there are no good people. There are people who are good citizens. There are people who are good neighbors. They might be good fathers, good mothers, good children, good cousins. But before God, this is what we're talking about. I'm not saying that people out in sin have no capability of doing good things in the world. But I'm saying before the judgment of God, under His appraisal, in His audit, there are none who are good. Jesus points this out, by the way, to the rich young ruler. Do you remember this? He comes and says, hey, I've done all the, you know, how can I inherit? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, here are the commandments, do those. He's like, well, I've done all those. But before that, the guy comes to him and says, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God alone. Now, obviously, Jesus is God, but he's making a point. That there is no one good but God alone. And if there's no one good but God alone, you need God. You need Jesus. You're not good enough in and of yourself. You cannot walk the tightrope between good and evil, falling off on the good more than you fall off on the evil and expect that the balances at the end of the day will come out in your favor. God's standard is His own holiness, and He will not compromise His own holiness. So not even one. Well, what shall we do, friends? Have they no knowledge, verse 4, have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up My people as they eat bread, And do not call upon the Lord. The implication is, yes. The inference, maybe. Yes, they do have knowledge. It is a patented fact that we know it is not right to oppress other people. At least it ought to be. This is how sin deceives. But they know, they know, they know. But notice what, how it shows up. 
How sin shows up in the evildoers in verse 4. And this is the same, right? Same as the fool who says in their heart, there is no God who looks for independence from Him. These are the same as those who have turned aside and become corrupt together. Here the evildoers, just another word for the same group of people, what do they do? They break the, the two pillars of the law of God. Jesus and Matthew and throughout the Gospels, you know, when, he, when they come to him, he says, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Not rhetorical. What's the greatest commandment? Yeah, love God. Love God with all you are. Everything you have. All your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love God. What? And the, and the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. So love God, love neighbor. This is if you're going to boiler, boiler plate down all of the law of God. Love God, first priority, with everything you have, everything you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, here in verse 4, they eat up my people as they eat bread. That sounds like not loving my neighbor. And they do not call upon the Lord. They refuse to worship. That's not loving God. That ultimately the evildoers are perpetrating sin and the breaking of God's law for all of, all of humanity. Everyone, everywhere is accountable to God for loving Him and loving their neighbor. Everyone everywhere is accountable to God for loving Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving their neighbor as themselves. Whether you are born in Zimbabwe or Australia or New Zealand or South Carolina or Michigan, fill in the blank. This is what God would have of us. And when He says, I'm looking for those who, are seek, who would seek after me, I'm looking for those who would love me and love their neighbor. And if you were to apply that template to the Garden of Eden, you see that Adam and Eve struck out on both fronts. You know, they they struck out, obviously, they didn't love God because they didn't obey Him. But then they didn't love one another either. Eve introduced the fruit to Adam, but then even afterwards, when God confronts Adam, Adam refuses to take responsibility, but it comes a, a staircase of scapegoats. Well, the woman you gave me. How often do we scapegoat each other in our marriages, men and women? That's not this sermon, I know. But it applies. The affront of the wickedness and of the evildoer is this twofold breaking of God's law. That they fail at the great commandment and they fail at the second commandment. But God, God is up to something. They are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. Verse 5. They are in great terror. Who's in great terror? The evildoers, the fool, those who turn aside, those who are corrupted. Why are they in great terror? Because they know. There's a terror of a guilty conscience. A conscience that condemns. After the Lord... My, my, my coming to faith in Jesus is simple, complicated. Complicated, simple. But when I was, I was baptized when I was 11, I was truly a believer. But the rancid fruit of hypocrisy grew in my life where I would, I would live one way with one group of people and another way with a different group of people so that I would be approved by those groups of people. 
and be applauded, that I would excel in what those groups of people would like me to excel in. And so I grew up in the church, and so I excelled in churchy things. I went on mission trips for churchy things, and I had people telling me how great a, a churchy guy I was. But then I had another group of people that I hung around, and I did the things that the world told me I would be applauded for. And at the time, I was blind to it all, at least willfully self-deceived. And what did Jesus do but come one evening on a summer when I was 16 and he pulled those curtains back and he said, here is your life, you hypocrite. And there was the terror of a guilty conscience. And at once I knew because of the Lord's gracious conviction, I knew that my life did not match up to what I had been called to in Jesus. It did not match up to what God was looking for in people. There was terror of a guilty conscience. And if this is you, please hear where I'm going. If your conscience burns against you, do not put it in a bucket and sink it to the bottom of the lake. Listen. Open yourself up to that. It is painful. It is difficult. It is sharp. But dear ones, it is only through that terror of conscience where you know right now you have never bent the knee to Jesus. You have never acknowledged Him as Savior and Lord. You have never trusted upon Him. You've never repented of your sins. You may even have been a member of a church for years and years, but this has never been you. Jesus has no bearing on your life the rest of your life except for maybe on this day where you want to pay some lip service. If that terror is welling up in you, that fear, do not turn to your phone. Do not run to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Do not go turn on ESPN. Don't go get on the internet. Don't go do something that will, stult, that will, that will stifle your conscience, that will distract you away. Because, dear ones, that is the Lord at work in your heart. And you must listen. And I'm going to make you squirm and it's going to break you. Because all of a sudden you see that God is with the generation of the righteous. He's not with you. Yet. He could be. You would shame the plans of the poor, verse 6, but the Lord is His refuge. The wicked shame the righteous poor's functional faith. Perhaps as your conscience begins to deal with you, you look upon those who are, who are what, the, what the psalmist used for the word poor here, who are bankrupted in their trust for, in Jesus, meaning that they've abandoned the world and cast themselves solely upon Jesus as our refuge and strength, and you would shame those Christian people. But the Lord is with and among the righteous to protect and provide for them as a shepherd does for his sheep. And then the psalmist's ultimate, the climax of the psalm is verse 7. We have heard grave news after grave news about our condition. Without God's intervention through the grace of His grace in Jesus Christ through the power of His Spirit, we are under sin, condemned in sin, 
destined to be at enmity, at war with God, and destined for eternity in hell. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Here is the climax that he has been driving us toward. You don't get there without dealing with the first six verses. The salvation that comes out of Zion, if we're going to bottle it up and put it to your need, it is Jesus. That He is the one in Zion, right? Zion is, a, is both talking about earthly Jerusalem, but also heavenly Jerusalem. He is the one who left heavenly Jerusalem to come into earthly Jerusalem to bear the sins of this know-nothing, corrupt, sour bowl of milk people because He has loved them for His own namesake. And He has done it and brought salvation for all who would call upon Him. All who would trust in Him, who would find refuge and strength in this Savior. For there's two ways to live. You can either listen to the offer of God through Jesus Christ, or you can continue in your sin, your self-deception, and your distraction and bear the weight not only of a terror of conscience, but the terror of eternity. For His salvation restores the fortunes of His people. Matthew Poole, who was a Puritan commentator, everybody remembers Matthew Henry. But Matthew Poole was on par with Matthew Henry in terms of Puritan commentators on Scripture. And he says of verse 7, These words belong to the times of the Messiah, by whom this promise was fulfilled to the true Israel of God, who were brought back from the most real and dreadful, though spiritual, captivity of sin and Satan. Jesus restores us by delivering us from the condemnation of sin that through His shed blood we now have forgiveness of our sins that we can be made clean. But He also liberates us from the domain of darkness and the one who has that crown, so to speak, Satan himself. He delivers us from the deception of the evil one. He delivers us from the power of the evil one. And He delivers us from our own perpetrating of sin and evil ourselves. So that the fruit and the reward of making the Lord our refuge is rejoicing and gladness for eternity. Beginning now, whatever today may bring, we can rejoice and be glad because we have been restored. Christian, you have been restored to your God by no doing of your own. You were just foolish like the rest. But the grace of God has appeared in Jesus. By His grace, by His Spirit, you have trusted. Dear ones, if you are not, or if you are uncertain as to where you are, what your spiritual condition is, Seek out the Lord's face and do not run away from, to the gods of this world with their distractions. Sit before the Lord and say, where am I? If in the face of Jesus you meet frightening terror, our God is a consuming fire, repent of your sins and know that He is also the friend of sinners. But if you see in Jesus the most lovely and the fairest of all, rejoice and be glad for what Christ has done. Let's pray. Lord, we praise You for Your Word and for Your presence. 
We thank you for your grace. That there are none who does good, not even one. But yet, while we were yet sinners, you demonstrated your love and that Christ died for us. Oh, the glory of your grace. I pray that that savor of the sweetness of your favor toward us, who do not deserve it, but I pray that that savor of the goodness of forgiveness and reconciliation and adoption into your family would be upon our hearts now. Lord, if there are some who you are dealing with now, I pray, I pray that your hand would be heavy until they come. I pray that you would convict, show them the devastation of sin in their own heart, in their lives, and the lives of those around them. But that it would not stop there, that that devastation would be turned to delight as they see Jesus crucified and risen, with arms outstretched, saying, Come, old Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Lord Jesus, you offer yourself to us, and we cling to you in faith. Build us and bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.